Good morning. I invite your attention to John chapter 4 this morning again. As you're turning to John 4, I want to uh, invite our kids, Children's Church Age, to be dismissed to Children's Church this morning. With our children heading out, we're again reminded that VBS is this week. We've had so many this week come and serve in terms of decorating. I know many have uh, been involved in doing a lot of preparation. And would you pray for Bible school this week? Um, Pray for kids and families and pray the gospel will go forward. Pray the gospel will be believed as we look forward to an exciting week here in Vacation Bible School. Well, if an, if an omnipotent God exists, then it is no difficulty to believe that miracles can happen. Now, secular culture that's left God behind finds the idea of miracles to be ludicrous. One of the first things liberal Christianity abandoned was the possibility of miracles. So can God supersede the laws of nature that he established, by the way, for his purposes and for his glory? And as believers, our answer to that question is absolutely. But then, what is the purpose of miracles? Are they just merely a a neat show? Are they a demonstration? What is the purpose In John's gospel, John calls miracles signs, meaning they point beyond the miracle to something else. And what they point to is the character, the nature, the person of Christ. And the purpose of miracles is for people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in his name. Today we come to the first healing miracle in John's gospel. Now, so far we've seen Christ has supernatural knowledge. Interaction with Nathaniel, interaction with the woman at the well. We saw him miraculously change water into wine. Later, he's going to show his power over nature. He'll feed 5,000 with what seems to be very little food. He miraculously multiplies that. And that sign leads him to declare that he is the bread of life. In John chapter 9, he heals a man born blind. And in that, he shows who's really blind and who really sees. Then in John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And many people saw the miracles. Some believed, some did not. So today, as we explore this text and this first healing miracle, my theme today is, Deficient belief demands a show, but genuine belief trusts Jesus as Savior. Deficient belief demands a show, but genuine belief trusts Jesus as Savior. With that, I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand and honor the reading of God's Word. And we're going to begin in John 4, verse 43, and read through 54. Where the Lord says, after the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, for he had made the water wine. 
And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Father, clearly there was a purpose in Jesus doing this miracle. I'm firmly convinced it was to draw people away from a fascination and a curiosity with Jesus to trusting, believing, saving faith in who Jesus is. And Lord, I pray for those under the sound of my voice I pray for those who, who may have just been curious about Jesus or maybe just has knowledge about Jesus and hasn't fully trusted in him as the Savior of the world. So I pray for them. And then I pray also for us, Lord. I pray for ever-deepening and growing faith for those who are already in Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we glimpse the person of Jesus more and more, that, God, we would love and treasure and serve him more. And I pray that our faith would grow in him. So we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So why does John place this miracle here in his gospel? John uses the verb believe 98 times in 21 chapters. And if I read it right, the verb occurs three times in this section, believe. So John's purpose in this miracle, I think, is the same as the purpose of his gospel. That purpose is given in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is writing so that we will believe and that we will have life through believing in his Son. And so when we dial into this healing miracle, I think the purpose of it is to produce belief. And we see that's the effect that happens here. But I want you to pay attention because I think there are two different types of belief in this story. One is true belief. One is tragic belief. Two different types of belief. One of those, again, is deficient belief. Now I say again because we saw this earlier in chapter 2. In verses 23 and following, we see this. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast... Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. So Jesus cleansed the temple. This is a sign of his authority. Then he did miracles. And some looked like they believed, but it wasn't genuine belief. It wasn't authentic. It was a deficient belief. It lacked something. It was insufficient. Well, what was it they were missing? All right, if we, if we look at this section as a whole, we go back to the first line, and that was turning water into wine there in Cana. And John references that again here in chapter 4, verse 46, and I think he does so deliberately. And then at the end of this count, account, he says this is the second sign. So if we take this this section of John 2, 1 through John 4, 54, if we take it as one section, it's bookended by these two signs, water into wine, healing of the official sons. Well, the result of the first was greater faith in the disciples. Okay, this is in John chapter 2, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. John's word loves that verb, believed in him. But as we saw, there were those who saw the signs like them, but there was deficient belief in them. So now if we fast forward, and we, we were in been John 3 and 4 a long time, but we fast forward to this second sign, the effect of this sign is the official and his family believes in Jesus. But even here, there's also a group that is lacking in their faith in some way, and that some way is the same way as those in chapter 2. And the lacking there in both places is there is a fascination with signs. There is a fascination with the miracles. Some people saw these miracles, and they really liked them, but they stopped at them. They didn't see them as signs pointing them to somewhere, and I think that's why John uses that word signs. They stopped and didn't get past them to see this person working the miracles, this Jesus is God in the flesh. This is the one Savior. This is the one mediator, and they miss that. They're only fascinated with signs and wonders. And that type of faith doesn't impress Jesus. And I'm convinced that what's going on in this interaction with the official, the way Jesus speaks, what Jesus is doing, is moving this man from that kind of deficient believing that's only fascinated with signs and wonders to genuine belief in him as Savior and Lord. I think if we don't see that, we miss the intent of what Jesus is doing in this story. So let, let's look at it a little bit more in depth. And I think geography matters here. Jesus has again come to Cana. And here is this desperate man. And he approaches Jesus. He's an official. He's likely in Herod's court. Herod wasn't really an authentic king of the Jews, but in some ways he's viewed in that way, and he 
some ways tries to function that way. But the man, the official, is Jewish, and his son is dying. In fact, his son is at the point of death. Now, if you put yourself in his place, you can just imagine. You are desperate. You want to try every effort to save your son. And you've heard that this Jesus is a miracle worker. Maybe you don't know a lot about him. You've tried everything for your son. You've tried every possible medicine for him. You've consulted doctors, and the doctors are now coming back saying, there's nothing more we can do for him. And instead of the fever going away, the fever keeps spiking. So all natural cures and solutions have been exhausted. So this man goes to Jesus. This is, this is his last effort to save his son. He goes to Jesus, and he begs him to come down. But Jesus responds in a way that we might find a bit shocking. Jesus responds to this man's plea with a rebuke. I want you to see how verse 48 jumps off the page to us when we come to this text understanding the desperation of a man whose son is at home dying. Here's Jesus' response. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now really, that's not the bedside manner we expect from Jesus, is it? Come heal my dying son. Rebuke. If we don't get this right, folks, if we don't interpret this rightly, we may see Jesus as cruel and uncaring. So why does Jesus answer this way? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And again, I think the purpose of what Jesus is doing in this whole account is why he answers this way. If he just made this statement arbitrarily, no purpose, we think, well, he's, he's just callous. He's just cold. But we know Jesus better than that. We know that Jesus loves people. We know Jesus does go, or, or does, he doesn't go. He heals this man's son. So why this strong rebuke in verse 48? And here's what I think is happening here. In his love for this man, he is pressing him to see who he truly is. He's pressing him to move past just seeing Jesus as miracle worker. That's, that's how he's approached him, right? He approached him solely for healing. He, he's not seeing Jesus as the Savior. He's not interested in Jesus' lordship in this moment. He just wants his son to be well. Now, Let's stay there, but let's also zoom out a little bit and see the broader audience to whom Jesus is speaking in verse 48. See, we don't see this real well just when we read it, but we, we don't see the plural you in verse 48. There's two yous in verse 48. Both of them are plural there. So Jesus isn't just speaking to this official, but also to the crowd. And much of the crowd is there for the show. They're there for the signs and the wonders. In fact, this is the only time in John's gospel that the word wonders is added to the term signs. 
And I think what John is doing is he is drawing out for us that some people are just there for the demonstration. They want Jesus to perform. They're fascinated by the miracles. So maybe they're saying, hey, that guy that turned water into wine, he's back. Maybe he's got a new trick up his sleeve. And so they want to see what he is going to do. They're curious. They're curious. Now, I want to give you a, a, a brief quote by the commentators Carter and Redberg. I found this really, really fascinating. Here's what they said. Spiritual curiosity is not authentic faith. Let me just say it one more time. Spiritual curiosity is not authentic faith faith so being curious doesn't mean there's relationship our family apparently has a dog now we we didn't intend to have a dog we didn't go out buying a dog a dog showed up at our front door that dog was starving now word must be out in South Hattiesburg in the animal community that the Hatfields are chumps. If you show up to their front door or over to the church sometimes, they're going to feed you. We fed the dog, fed the dog one night, just starving. Well, guess who was still on our front porch the next morning? That dog. And her paws were torn up, so we doctored them up. I bought a leash and a collar yesterday, took her for a walk this morning. So now we have this dog. We've had a dog for a week. And our dog is living on our back porch. Now we also have a cat. Someone dumped the cat here at the church. So if you're ditching animals at the Hatfield's door or here at the church, please stop. I'm feeding four kids and now two animals. We are good, okay? Now, I'm not just telling you this for no reason, okay? Here's the thing. The, cat, the dog's living on the back porch. There's a door with a glass see-through type of thing in it, and our cat sits on the other side of the door. And they stare at each other. This cat is phenomenally curious about this dog. But that curiosity does not mean relationship. I think if we let the cat out there with the dog, you, will, you would see quickly there is no relationship there. But you will find that cat just right there, door, dog, curiosity. But I say all that to make the point that curiosity does not mean relationship. So come back now with me out of the feline and dog community. Come back here into the story. There is much curiosity in John's gospel from people about Jesus. But that curiosity is often in terms of this guy does signs. We like looking at signs. They are interesting. That doesn't mean they trust him. That doesn't mean there's relationship. Let me take you a, a couple chapters over and show you this. In John 6 verse 15, here's what we get. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Look at this, folks. 
the people are so enthralled with Jesus that they want to take him by force to make him king. Surely, that's believing, right? They want to make him king. Hold on. If you fast forward through this chapter, there is a lot that takes place and a lot of things that Jesus says such that when we get to verse 66, same chapter, here's what we get. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Well, what in the world has happened? Well, there were many people there who were curious about the free bread. They really liked Jesus feeding 5,000 people. They're fascinated by this miracle. But here's what happens. When Jesus starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, many of those people just take off. They're there for the show. They're not there for his lordship. That's not what they signed up for. Okay, so come back with me into this story in John 4. Come back to this man. He clearly wants Jesus to come and heal his son. But I think less clearly to us on the surface of this text Jesus it wants true belief out of him. Jesus is drawing out true belief, okay? And I want you to see some of the terms that are going to be used here in this account. This desperate dad comes to Jesus, and in verse 47, he says, or, or he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. Jesus' response is, Unless you see, unless you physically see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I don't think the guy gets it at all right here. Official comes back and says, sir, come down before my child dies. So two times in three verses, he begs Jesus, come down, come down, come down to his home. So it's, and, and, and it's not a one-time request. The, the verb tense is such that he keeps on asking, that he's begging Jesus to come down to his home. So Jesus then rebukes, and his rebuke is about seeing. You have to see these signs. So then I want you to hear, come down, come down. And Jesus' command to him is, go. Come down, come down. Jesus, go. Your son will live. So Jesus is saying, I'm not going. I'm staying here. You go. That's my command to you. You go, and your son will live. Now, when Jesus says your son will live, he doesn't mean that, hey, the medicine you've been giving him, it's starting to kick in now, and your son's going to be fine. That is not what Jesus means. He does not mean that there's a new doctor that's done a lot of research about this disease. He's got it figured out. He's going to come. He is going to help your son. That is not what he means. What Jesus means is, I speak, your son lives. I am the life giver. I am the source of life. If I say your son will live, I'm not making a prediction. I am making him live. The same God who spoke the universe into existence can speak these words from miles away and it takes place and the effect hits the son and the son lives. So he's saying to him, this son of yours that right now is on death's doorstep, when I speak, he 
lives. And listen, this distance, it doesn't limit Jesus one little bit. See, I don't have to travel those 20 miles. I speak, he lives. Okay. This is the first half of verse 50. I, I, I find verse 50 to be fascinating. But I just want you to pause at the first half of verse 50. Two times this man, come down, come down. Jesus says, go, your son will live. I think this takes a lot of faith, church, to go. I think it takes, I think this is a pivotal moment for this guy. Everything slows down. You can imagine he's been in a panic. His son's dying. He's trying to get help anywhere he can. Miracle worker comes back, begs him to come down. Jesus says, go. So will he believe or will he continue to panic? Now, I don't think it's accidental that John includes that detail in verse 46 for us about this is the area where Jesus turned water into wine. I think the official has probably heard this story. I think he's heard maybe about the events of the feast. So he knows Jesus is a miracle worker. Here's Jesus back in town. Desperate man goes to him just as the miracle worker, just looking for a healing. And Jesus says, go, your son will live. Now I want to maybe compare this with the Gentile centurion. Remember there's a Gentile centurion and he had a, a deeper faith than even this Jewish official dad who comes to Jesus. He trusted Jesus could heal at a distance without Jesus even mentioning it. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 6 and following, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. That's pretty remarkable faith from a Gentile centurion. Well, here's this Jewish official. John 4, at this moment, John 4.50a, his faith isn't that strong. So he's, he's got this pivotal moment. When Jesus says, go, your son will live. Prior to this, I don't think he could fathom 20 mile away healing taking place. You know what I think he wanted? He wanted to see it. I think he felt like he needed to see as Jesus says in verse 48, you need to see these signs and wonder. So for him to get around to believing without seeing would be massive. For him to take Jesus at his word, he has to see him as more than just a guy who shows up and can do miracles. I think he has to see him as the Savior worthy of his trust. So with all that going on in verse 50a, let's see what he says, what, what is said about him in verse 50b. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man believed not the seeing of the sign, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. So then he took Jesus' rebuke about seeing, he processed what Jesus was saying, and he left without seeing, but he leaves believing. And I think this is why Jesus does this miracle. I think this is why John records the story. 
and puts it here. Throughout John's gospel, he is tearing down this belief that's merely tied to signs and wonders and miracles. And I think this helps us understand the introduction to this story. Because the introduction of the story seems confusing in a lot of ways. If you go back with me to verses 43 and following. It says, After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, what follows in verse 45 is not what we would expect from verse 44. Jesus just says that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. I think here he's talking about the broader region. He's coming back to this Jewish area. And so when he says that the prophet has no honor in his own hometown, what we expect in verse 45 is, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans rejected him. That's what we expect based on what Jesus said in verse 44. That's not what it says. It says the Galileans welcomed him. And, and we, might, we might want to ask, well, if in verse 44 they don't honor him, how is it that then in verse 45 they welcome him instead of rejecting him? And here I think is the answer. I think there's a way to welcome Jesus that does not honor Jesus. Let me try to clarify that. I think there's a way to welcome Jesus on the condition of you're the miracle worker, you do signs, we're good with that. But we don't honor you as the one Savior and one Lord. I want you to see the qualification at the end of verse, or in the middle of verse 45. Having seen, there's that word see again, right? Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the faith, or, or at the feast. They welcomed him because they had seen signs. That's what they want. But they don't welcome him in terms of this is the Savior. Now, if you're still in verse 43, what are those two days there? After the two days. Well, those are the two days that he had stayed in Samaria. He had stayed two days and he had taught the Samaritans. Now, remember their response in verse 42b. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What made the Samaritans see Jesus as the Savior of the world? Was it signs? I don't think you find the word signs anywhere in the entire story of the woman at the well and the Samaritans. I don't think you find it there. Well, what did they believe then? Pay attention here. Pay attention. Verse 41 of this chapter. What did they believe? And many more believed because of his word. What did this man that Jesus is speaking to, this official, in verse 50 believe? Verse 50 again, B. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. You see this? Samaritans believed the word. And now here's Jesus going back to Jewish people. What did they believe? They believed he's the Savior world. That's the Samaritans. These are the Jewish people. This is the Jewish Messiah. Surely they would see he is the Savior of the world. But so many missed it because they only wanted the signs. And so I think John 
places this story here to contrast a signs and wonders deficient believing with true belief that trusts Jesus at his word and sees him as the Savior of the world. G.L. Borchert said, if the man had been toying with the idea of viewing Jesus as a wonder-working, cure-all magician, Jesus stopped him immediately in any such pattern of thinking. So remember, there are those in Galilee who are welcoming Jesus just on condition of signs and wonders, not as the Savior. So let's see what this man does. Go, your son will live. The man believed the word. And then there's a lot of details about his servants meeting the official and telling him that his son is well. He asks them when it happened. They tell him the seventh hour. Folks, this is not extraneous information. Let's do the math here, okay? I know you don't come to church to do math, but I think we need to see it here. Here is their report. In verse 52, he asks them when, the, when his son got better, and they said, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And this is the time Jesus told the man his son would live. But I want you to pay attention. Yesterday, seventh hour. Now, a new day in our way of keeping time begins at midnight. So for us, in our day and age, seventh hour is 7 a.m. That is not the timeline John is using. He's using the Roman way of keeping time, which would begin at 6. So if that's around daylight, if it's the seventh hour, the seventh hour is 1 p.m. Now stay with me. I'm, I've got a purpose for telling you this. Some of this is speculation by scholars and others, but I do think it fits here. If Jesus spoke at 1 p.m. to this man who is desperate, who is panicked, and says, go, your son will live, if he wanted to, this man could have gotten home the same day. It's estimated that it's about 18 to 22 miles from, from where he was to his home. A well-to-do official, I don't think it's crazy to think that he probably got there on a horse or some other animal. So why does this man stay and not have to rush home? So I'm telling you, if I'm panicked about my child, I'm probably going to rush home. This guy stayed where he was for another night and then went home the next day. How could he do that? His son is in critical condition. He had begged over and over, Jesus, come. Whatever it takes, I'm going to get you there. If I have to get you a horse, if I have to get you a helicopter, I'm going to get you there, Jesus. The only way I think he can stay is if he believes Jesus really does keep his word. He's more than just a miracle worker. He spoke, and in Jesus' speaking and this man believing, his fear is replaced by faith. He truly believed Jesus' word. Now we get the follow-up in verse 53. And he himself believed in all his household. So again, he believed, verse 50. We got that right. Now we get verse 53. He believed. Believe then, believe now. Well, when did he believe? Both times. Yes, he believed. Now, I think we could spend some time here 
wrestling with the question, well, when did he really believe Jesus is the Savior? And that's, that's not a bad question, but it's a question that John doesn't really address. And he seems to focus more on growing belief as he learns more about Jesus as the Savior. He focuses on this man growing in his faith in Jesus. Here's what Carter and Redberg say about that. John is showing us how authentic faith always results in continued belief. Don't misunderstand what he's teaching. He's not saying a person needs to be saved over and over. He's not denying genuine conversion happens at the moment when a person turns from sin and trusts Christ. What he is saying is that those who are genuinely converted will continue to believe on Jesus Christ. So I think what we see here is a guy who believed and as he learns more and more about Jesus, he continues to believe. He continues to grow in his faith. All right, so what do you take away from this story? What are some applications that we want to give? Well, certainly one application is if you are a follower of Jesus, keep growing deeper in your faith. This man believed without seeing. This man grew in his faith. And when he acts on that faith, he keeps growing in his faith. And growing discipleship is knowing, loving, and trusting Jesus more. Dig into the Word. Gather with your church family. Be fascinated, not just with what Jesus can do miraculously, but with who Jesus is and keep growing him. And, and dads, let me, just, let me just call us to pay attention here. It's said that this whole household believed. I'm, I don't want to take away from each individual person in the household had to personally put their faith in Jesus. That had to happen. If there's uh, the wife in the home, son in the home, they have to personally put their faith in Jesus Christ. But look at the influence the father's faith had on the family. I imagine when he got home, he couldn't wait to tell the story to them about Jesus. I, I doubt he had told it only once. I'm sure this was a, a story this man rehashed regularly with his family. The family heard the truth about Jesus. Jesus didn't come down, right? Jesus said go. So this family heard the truth about the Savior of the world, Jesus, from dad's lips. And they believed. And I think there is something very influential about his father's faith in the life of his family. So keep growing deeper in your faith. Another application. Don't just be enamored with miracles. Be enthralled by the person of Jesus. We could say also this way. Don't be enamored with the miracles and be indifferent to the person of Jesus. We might be tempted to think that there's a signs and wonders crowd on the page of the New Testament that disappeared once the New Testament is written. And that's not the case. There is still a fascination with miracles that it could also dangerously be accompanied by lukewarmness to the person of Christ. There is still a believing that isn't believing. There's a difference in wanting a miracle from Jesus 
wanting a blessing from Jesus, wanting prosperity from Jesus, and treasuring Jesus over everything in the universe. Is Jesus your great treasure? This is a sign. It's not in itself. This is a sign pointing to the person of Christ. This official got it. I don't know about the rest of the crowd that's fascinated with signs and wonders that they saw, but this man believed Jesus is the Savior of the world. And sometimes miracles lead to that next step. And quite frankly, sometimes they don't. We see this in the raising of Lazarus. This is, this is amazing. In John chapter 11, back-to-back verses, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in verses 45 and 46. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. We think, of course. You see this Jesus raise a dead guy, four days dead? Of course you believe. But look what's in the very next verse. But some of, the went, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Those folks didn't believe. They just went to tattletale. They're trying to get Jesus in trouble. For what? Raising Lazarus from the dead. What if you don't get healed? What if you don't get the job that you want? What if you don't get greater influence? Is Jesus still enough? Is he still the greatest person, very God of very gods, who came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, sacrificial death in our place to redeem humanity back to him, raised from the dead, exalted at God's right hand, coming again, worthy of all our faith. He is still the great treasure in the universe. Treasure him, not just what he can do in your life momentarily. And then thirdly, Trust that Jesus uses the circumstances in your life, all the circumstances in your life, to grow your faith. This man had the worst of circumstances when he comes to Jesus. Son's dying. I can't imagine a worse circumstance than a child on the brink of death. That's a terrifying moment. But it's the very one Jesus used in this man's life to produce believing in him. Church, God does not, if you're in Christ, God does not waste our suffering. And if you're not in Christ, God may use your suffering to bring you to saving faith in Jesus. Believer, you can probably look back on your life of faith and you look back at those valley moments. You know, when you're, when everything seems to be going wrong. You look back on the mountaintop moments. And I'm guessing if I asked you, when did you grow most in your faith in Jesus? You'd point to a lot of those valleys. God can use the circumstances in our life to bring greater faith in Jesus. Now look at this story. I, I find it to be way more fascinating after studying it than I did going into it. I got to learn a lot this week. And here's the thing I want you to take home with you. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the great treasure. 
And I encourage us, treasure Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for thank you for this miracle. Thank you for us getting it in the gospel of John. Thank you for so graciously giving us that. Thank you for working in this man's life, for calling him out from a just seeing and just desire for Jesus to be a miracle worker. Thank you for drawing him out to true belief in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would do that. Those under the sound of my voice, radio, Facebook, or in this sanctuary, that where there is not genuine saving faith, that you would turn people to that. Father, I pray for those who are in Christ, who maybe come in today and are just battling some difficult circumstances. Lord, I pray that they would be encouraged today that you use all circumstances in our lives to grow us in our faith. Lord, I pray for every Christ follower in this room that you would conform us more to the image of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would produce a growing, persevering faith in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand?